0: Hello, and welcome to GovGuys, a podcast brought to you by two teachers who are just likely to make a reference to a movie as they are to a Supreme Court case. I'm Mr. Hertzler. And I'm Mr. Crowder. And today we're looking at the Bill of Rights. And these are the first ten amendments to the Constitution. Last episode, we specifically looked at the First Amendment, which is obviously part of the Bill of Rights. But today we're going to hit the rest. That's right. And say what you will about the First Amendment. What? It's a joke. Oh, good one.
1: Yeah, but the Bill of Rights is no laughing matter. The promise of inclusion of the Bill of Rights ultimately allowed for many wary anti-federalists to jump on board and support the ratification of the Constitution in 1787 and 1788.
0: And because the Bill of Rights exists, all Americans are offered civil liberties, and those are specifically listed protections from the government. So you are allowed to speak freely and openly about virtually anything without threat of reprisals from the government. Ooh, these sound like a big deal. Let's go ahead and get started.
1: When in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to be the people
0: of the United States in order to form a more perfect union.
1: Government of the people by the people. For the people shall not perish from the earth. This is the GovGuys podcast, episode eight, the rights stuff, all about the Bill of Rights.
0: So, the Bill of Rights emerged as a compromise between the Federalists and Anti Federalists regarding ratification of the Constitution. We say that much already. But did you know that the original Bill of Rights drafted by James Madison actually had 17 proposed amendments? But just like any amendment, there is a process that needs to be followed. The amendment needs the support of two-thirds of both houses of Congress and three-quarter of the states in order to actually be added to the Constitution. Some of these proposed amendments were combined together, as was the case with the First Amendment, and some were dropped altogether.
1: Yeah, so let's start off with a quick overview of the Bill of Rights, and then we'll get more specific. Of course, the Bill of Rights begins with the First Amendment. The First Amendment, once again, is that RAPS Amendment. You have the freedom of religion, assembly, press, petition, and speech offered in the First Amendment. The Second Amendment is the right to keep and bear arms. The Third Amendment is a protection from the quartering of troops. The Fourth Amendment is protection from unreasonable search and seizure. The Fifth Amendment has many parts, but it includes the due process, the idea of double jeopardy, the right against self-incrimination, and imminent domain. The Sixth Amendment, big ideas, the right to a speedy and public trial by jury, the right to confront your accusers, and perhaps most importantly, the right to an attorney. The Seventh Amendment we're not going to spend a lot of time on today, but the Seventh Amendment offers the right to a jury in the event of a civil trial, which is a dispute between two people in which no law has specifically been broken, but the court is still needed to settle disputes. The Eighth Amendment is the Cruel and Unusual Punishment Amendment, which talks specifically about protections for the accused against cruel and unusual punishments, which can also include excessive fines and excessive bail. The Ninth and Tenth Amendment are add-ons, but it's still very important. The Ninth Amendment is meant to provide extra protections for individuals that were not specifically written in the Constitution. And the Tenth Amendment is specifically to grant powers to states that were not granted to the federal government in the Constitution.
0: So we discussed the First Amendment quickly last episode, but again, wraps, amendment, religion, assembly, press, petition, and speech, all guaranteed by the government. If you want to review that one again, check out our previous episode.
1: And I don't remember the
0: exact wording of the Second Amendment, but I'll give it a shot. Wow, Crowder, come up with that all by yourself. You're really, what is wrong with you today? Their verbatim quote of the Second
1: Amendment from the Bill of Rights is, quote, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. So Hertzler, the Second Amendment is obviously, I would say, probably the most polarizing of our first ten amendments.
0: What's your take? Well, one of the big takes of it, i it, it's one of the most misquoted amendments of all time as well, because if you when you hear it in society, all we all we really hear from this amendment, is that second line of right to bear arms, which is really important, but everybody's forgetting the first half of that, where it's that well-regulated militia part. So my hot take is it's one of the most misquoted amendments of all time.
1: Right. We have to remember that a lot of this is coming out of the context of states that wanted to have a lot of self-efficacy. They wanted a lot of self-determination. They didn't want to necessarily be a part of a huge federal government, right? Uh, And and we're just coming out of the Articles era where, you know, states really did have virtually their own militias running things. And and so I think a lot of the wording of the Second Amendment, you have to understand in the context of states wanting to have militias to maintain their own self-determination. And the right to bear arms was just a part of that to make sure that their militias were
0: armed. However, you have to look at the other side of the argument too with the federal government. Remember, it was this lack of militia that kind of led to the Constitution moment in general. Um, when you have, when you think about Shay's Rebellion, uh, a lot of the militia members that would have been in the Massachusetts militia were actually on the side of Daniel Shay because they were kind of the ones being uh, taken a fool of by pay- paying, the, you know, those those high taxes. So you kind of get a sense that. That it needs to be regulated, but but then you have that double-edged sword where it can fall apart when it comes to national security.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I I do feel like there is a disconnect in how we understand the Second Amendment. And I think a fair amount of it is attributed to just the difference in time, you know, between the world that existed in 1789 and the world that exists today in 2023. I do think there's a big difference in in how things are. The technology especially associated with weapons is hugely different. And I I largely would also like to add in probably maybe this is the controversial part as well is the likelihood of a successful uprising of people against the government.
0: Yeah, and I think one of the big things too is as a society now we need to define what militia means. Um, Is that the National Guard? Is Is that the state militia? Or does the state still have a priority of having a a almost like a fo- volunteer fire department where you get called up on the weekends, you know, outside of the National Guard? Because the National Guard almost seems like a branch of the military, um, but there's really no defined what is a militia in twenty twenty three. Um, some people believe that a militia is just a group of people that could go camping in in the woods and do military drills. Um, on the weekend, but have no real connection with the government. Advocates for gun
1: control are going to ask that exact question. You know, the wording is a well-regulated militia. And, you know, what, what, what regulation is fair? What regulation is too much? I mean, if, if we're going full out here, you should make the argument that in order to have maximal uh, optimization of the Second Amendment, you and I should be able to have a nuclear warhead in our backyard if we want to.
0: Whoa there, Chief.
1: At what at what level do you draw the line? I mean, I obviously I would think that most people are going to agree that a random individual like you or I shouldn't have just a nuclear warhead sitting around. But at what point in time is our right to bear arms restricted or should be restricted or or should it ever be restricted? I don't know. That's that's where a lot of the debate is today on the Second Amendment.
0: Yeah, and going back to that idea of historical context and, and what Crowder said, what is the line? Um, we we have this. What what was the weaponry like back in eighteen whatever when you know some of these early cases were being argued? Uh, the, the The federal government and the 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 average Joe Smo has has the same weapon. They 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 have a slow loading rifle. But now it's like, well, I have my deer rifle, but but the federal government has an assault rifle. So I feel like I should have the same level of firepower as them. Um, One interesting take, and I heard this a few years ago from a student in AP government. I don't know how credible it is, but it sounds pretty credible, um, especially when it comes to this idea of having a militia is Switzerland. Um, if you own a weapon in Switzerland, you are mandated by the government to participate in, I think it's one once a month you go and to state militia practice, where you go there and you 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 practice in military operations and drills. And I'm sure they teach you gun safety there. Um, I'm not opposed to this, but y- you gotta think Switzerland is a is a small-ish country. Um probably about the size of some of our our mid mid-range states. So I, I feel like that would be hard to 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 regulate in the United States, especially when it comes to the states, but it's not a terrible idea.
1: Right. You know, the, the Swiss are built different. They have their own knife, you know, like uh, many of you have never opened wine under fire before, but we're going to practice that now, right? But but anyway, I I, I that is an interesting point that you bring up. You know, if we're talking about the well-regulated militia being part of the Second Amendment, it seems almost that if you're looking at a really strict constructionist view of the Constitution, you should have some level of mandatory training with the government in order to have those guns. But most people wouldn't agree with that point.
0: No, and it's really difficult for the federal federal government really has its hands tied with with issues like this, um, which we'll get into later. We're not going to get into today. Today, we're just really focusing on what is the Second Amendment and but but you you can't talk about one without the other um we're uh, talking historically we're going to talk about an important court case that goes along with the second amendment um one that we take a look at in class and we talked about several times and that is the court case mcdonald versus chicago so the city of chicago is known as being one of the most violent cities in america created a bill um in their their city legislature, basically banning people from having small firearms, um, basically handguns um, in in the city limits and to keep people safe. It's a, it's a no brainer. It's you think, yeah, that, that could work. However, a man uh, was upset about this and, 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 and sued this law because he said it violated his right to carry a gun to protect himself. Um some of his arguments were that it's not going to keep guns off the streets and he needs his own personal handgun to protect his own life. Um, and the federal government sided with McDonald, the, the 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 guy suing Chicago because it violates the Second Amendment. It is taking away his right to carry a gun.
1: Right and just to make sure you heard it that case is called McDonald versus Chicago and it's one of the landmark Supreme Court cases that we want to make sure that we know for this course and and, and so the idea that the right to bear arms and how it applies to you at the state level seems like it should be a no brainer but this is actually a major process that we have to understand is that initially our understanding of the Bill of Rights did not extend to the state level it was only actually meant to be applied at the federal level
0: this is this is known as the selective incorporation process, and it all deals with everybody's favorite amendment, the Fourteenth Amendment. And you'll see, College Board loves to talk about the Fourteenth Amendment. So the idea of selective incorporation is that the states cannot take away your rights protected by the federal government, because you are a citizen of the state of North Carolina, for example. You have all the rights and equal protection under the 14th Amendment of the federal government. So they will step in and make sure that the states are keeping your rights protected. And that's exactly what happened here in Chicago versus McDonald. Chicago tried to take away this man's Second Amendment right. The federal government steps in and says, "Whoa, no, that does not work. You are an American citizen. You have the right to bear arms under the Second Amendment. So it cannot be taken away from you.
1: Yeah, more on the selective incorporation doctrine later. But for now, we just wanted to introduce that idea because, yes, the Second Amendment is obviously a huge part of McDonald versus Chicago. But you can't take that part away. that selective incorporation plays a role as well. Another case that deals with weapons but doesn't really focus on weapons is one of the major takeaways is this case of U.S. versus Lopez. And in U.S. Lopez, this is a case from the mid-90s. The federal Congress put in place a series of gun-free zone laws that were meant to uh, you know, target places like schools and churches and some other places that were meant to be gun-free. Lopez brought a weapon onto school campus in Texas, and he was arrested under this federal law. And it went all the way to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court took a look at the case and asked the federal government to explain themselves. the federal government said that we have a right to regulate weapons, regulate guns specifically, under the Commerce Clause of the Constitution. That's actually where the Supreme Court ran into issue with the government's argument. The Supreme Court rules that there's no specific commercial activity that deals with having a handgun. And so ultimately, they said that it was unconstitutional for Congress to use the Commerce Clause as a way of regulating handguns. So what happens is they threw that law out, but Congress ultimately rewrote it to be a bit more clear. Uh, And so we still have gun-free zones in schools especially, uh, but that specific set of laws that were in place in 1995 had to be replaced. And just as we were talking about McDonald versus Chicago, US Lopez does involve guns, uh, but there's another issue at hand too. And this specific idea is more federalism. You know, it's related to the concept that the federal government does not have the end all be all of controlling what you do at the state level. And this one in particular was in relation to the Commerce Clause. And you think way back to the beginning of the government. You know, you had the famous Gibbons versus Ogden case, which was all about interstate commerce clause uh, for um, ferries between New York and New Jersey. And ever since that point in time, really, Congress had a lot of authority to rule and make decisions using the commerce clause as a way to do it. U.S. Lopez kind of pulled the reins back on that and said, whoa,
0: you can't make everything related to the commerce clause. They try quite often, and 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 sometimes they're successful, sometimes they're not. But yeah, that idea of federalism is important with U.S. Lopez. And to be fair, McDonald versus Chicago is a little bit about federalism in its own right because it's the federal government saying this is specifically defined in the Constitution. This is our jurisdiction. We're allowed to tell you, no, you're not going to take this person's right to own a gun. Uh, moving on, we're going to talk about Amendment Number 3, and I will quickly quote amendment number three amendment number three is one historically that we don't really have a lot of it, examples of it being used it's predominantly important for the revolutionary War time, and it was designed to make sure that this issue wouldn't come up in the future and amendment three reads this no soldier shall in time of peace be quartered in any house without the consent of the owner nor in a time of war but in a manner to be prescribed by law. Basically, the the nickname for this amendment is called the quartering of soldiers. Nobody in the United States has to house troops without their permission. Now, if you give permission to, to house troops, you're more than welcome to do so, but the federal government cannot force you to be the home of American troops. We have barracks. We have fortifications for that um we have military camps but you're not you're not supposed to be forced into housing them
1: yeah and once again this is as you said uh, very much directly related to the american revolutionary war Because prior to that war, the British would send soldiers over all the time, and they actually made the Quartering Act, which basically was rubbing it in their faces. You know, you have British soldiers staying in American colonist's house. It's an invasion of your privacy. You have to give up a a, a room for them. You have to give up food for them. It would have been a pretty big burden. And and, in drawing up the Constitution, the Founding Fathers wanted to make sure that that would never happen to their people again.
0: Yeah, like I said, we we don't really have any examples of this. Um no Supreme Court cases, no real big issues of this either. Um one we we haven't had very many wars fought on American soil. Um so so it doesn't really really apply. I, I hope there's never a day, but but it, this would only really apply if if America's invaded that, that you would really see this be issued. Moving on, Crowder, you want to take the fourth amendment?
1: Yeah, we're going to look at the next several amendments as kind of this idea, it's called the rights of the accused. Um, And if we look at amendments four, five, six, and eight, especially, these are really considering the the rights of the accused. So the concept is if you're charged with a crime, the founding fathers wanted to make sure you had just as many, if not more protections uh, than people who are in the ordinary citizenry because ultimately a big practice that they were trying to get away from in like old school Europe is you could be thrown in jail for any number of reasons and essentially stay there without any, any way of getting out. So we always have to think of four, five, six, seven, and eight as basically a course correction for the history of how we've treated those who are accused of crimes.
0: Yeah. And again, this kind of goes back to that American revolution, uh, what was going on during the American revolution, the British government basically had this idea that you were guilty already. Um, They're just going to find evidence now to prove that you are guilty, but really never really prove your innocence. So, so this is a way of, of changing that doctrine. Now, now in America, you were innocent until proven guilty. Um, So, so you see that, that switch over in in ideals um, there, because as Crowder said, Um, And, you know, if you were considered to be a a patriot sympathizer um, during the American Revolution, they would just throw you in jail just because and you would never see the light of day again. Right. So let's start specifically
1: with the Fourth Amendment and the Fourth Amendment reads the right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated and no warrants shall issue but upon probable cause supported by oath or affirmation
0: and particularly describing the place to be searched and the persons or things to be seized. With the fourth amendment, we're really going to take a look at two important ideals. And the first one is specified really clearly. And that is the unlawful search and seizure uh, part of the fourth amendment. So when you are accusing of a crime, the, the police or the federal government cannot just come and investigate and search your your house or any property you own, unless they have quote probable cause for doing so that they have a enough evidence that you committed the crime and that they should investigate further.
1: Right. And even before they get to that stage, in most cases they're going to need a search warrant. They're not supposed to just turn up to your house and Start, you know, throwing out your 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 desk drawers into the front of the yard to see what's there, right? Uh, now this this is a little bit different when you bring in the idea of probable cause. If you, there's noise complaint against you, and you're at a party and you're underage, and that you open the door and they can see very cl- clearly and plainly that there are a bunch of kids in the house and they're carrying around solo cups and it's probably alcohol they could barge in right then and kind of do a search or the same idea. If you're driving and you smell strangely like a certain type of recreational drug, they're probably going to search your car.
0: Yeah. If they see open beer cans in the floorboard, they're probably going to give you a breathalyzer test. Um, Yeah. So, so that, that probable cause is one of those things that is very, is a hot button issue is what is defined as probable cause. But again, if you get a search warrant most times, you have to present some type of reasoning to, to, a, to a district attorney who will then provide the search warrant to the police or whoever is investigating you.
1: Just while we're on the idea of unreasonable searches and seizures, before we get too far ahead of ourselves, I do want to make sure that we understand there's a difference between probable cause and when there's just no probable cause, you know, and when you get to the idea, one of the very controversial things that they were doing in New York, I believe was this program called stop and frisk, where basically, you know, it got pretty sketchy with what, who they chose to pull over. A lot of the times racial profiling was a part of it, but they would just randomly pull you over on the street and say, turn out your pockets. We want to see if you're carrying a handgun or seeing if you're carrying drugs that has been shown to be pretty unconstitutional in, in virtually all circumstances. Uh, and so, you know, unreasonable search and seizure is meant to say that in usual circumstances, if you're just minding your own business, the police or the some form of agent from the government is not meant to come and make you turn out your pockets and, and give up a search. But in some circumstances, if there is probable cause or if there's a warrant, yes, they have the
0: right to search. There is a big difference there. So now that we talked about probable cause, what if the police don't have permission to search you and they find evidence on you that they got without a warrant? What happens then? Well, this is an idea
1: called the exclusionary rule. And if they find something illegal that they were not specifically looking for, had permission to look for, they can't use it against you.
0: Yeah, that leads us to the, our next important Supreme Court case, and it's another historical case um, happened in the 70s. Uh, is, is a case known as MAP versus Ohio. Um, this case specifically deals with the exclusionary rule where the police um, searched a woman's home um, while I think she was at work. Like she wasn't even at home when they searched it. She was home. I thought I always heard that she was at work, but anyway, she was at home. Uh, searched through her house, and they found something illegal underneath her bed. Um, that, in in this time period, was considered to be illegal to have um, obscene materials, and you can let your imagination run wild with that one. Um, and she was arrested and charged with having the, this material underneath her bed. However, because they did not have a search warrant she was let off for for the crimes that she committed because it applies to the exclusionary rule. They could not use that evidence against her because it was obtained illegally. Right. If I remember the idea behind MAP is they were actually
1: looking for a person that they thought that she was housing and that she was kind of hiding away. And they said, oh, we don't have a search warrant. We'll come back. And they came back with a piece of paper to get in the house, but it was not an actual search warrant. And later on down the line, they obviously did find this, these obscene materials and they charged her. Funny enough, it was after the fact that the person she was housing was found not guilty. They're like, well, we'll get something out of this, right? And, and so they charged her with, the, you know, having these obscene materials, which was uh, illegal in Ohio law at the time. And because of the fact that there was no search warrant, you know, they, they could not use this against her due to the exclusionary rule. And that's a really important concept. So we're talking about unreasonable searches and seizures. And as I said earlier, they can't just roll up on you on the street and tell you to you know, turn out your pockets. But what are your rights like at school? Are your rights fundamentally different at school? As, as we discussed with the First Amendment, they're not. You have very similar rights to the First Amendment in school as you do out of school in most cases. But there is actually a pretty big discrepancy in how you are treated under the Fourth Amendment, if you were in school versus out of school. And for that case, we're going to look at a famous case from the 80s, TLO versus New Jersey. In TLO versus New Jersey, a teacher rolled into a bathroom because she smelled cigarette smoke, and they found two kids in there, and one was smoking and admitted to it right away, and the other was a freshman. Uh, we only know this person as TLO, their initials. And they were taken right to the principal's office. And she said, hey, I wasn't smoking. I wasn't smoking. And they're like, sure you were. Let's Let's take a look at your purse. And so they look at the purse and they see cigarettes in there. But that's not it. They actually see rolling papers right next to it. And as the principal starts searching more and more and more into this purse, they're finding more and more stuff which suggests that this student not only was smoking, but they were using and selling drugs at school.
0: Yeah, my favorite is the index card that they found with all the people's names on it that owes her money. Like, how are you getting away with that one? Also, it's it's fun to point out, a lot of my students are like, if, if she would have just admitted to smoking, would they have searched her? It's interesting to think.
1: Yeah, but, you know, the big question comes up is, You know, does the exclusionary rule apply here? Does the school have a right to start digging into your bag without your permission? And she is found to be guilty of obviously having drug paraphernalia and suspended from school. I think she's actually kicked out of school. And she challenges this in court. And all the way at the Supreme Court level, they have to rule as whether or not the exclusionary rule applies. And actually, the Supreme Court says it does. But they also rule that in the basis of running a functional school, your right to search and seizure does not actually have to have a probable cause. It is at a much easier threshold to pass. It's called you have to have a reasonable suspicion to search a student on school grounds. And reasonable suspicion just means like uh, someone was smoking in the bathroom and you were in there during that time, right? And, and so the threshold for being searched at a school is much lighter actually uh, than than it would be if you were just on the
0: street. Yeah, this is a very high-discussed you know moment in class when you talk about it. And it, you know, well, I could tell them not to search my car. Well, if, if they have reasonable suspicion that you are ha- if you have something in your car, they're they're more than allowed to go look in your car. Um, I think the thing that is interesting is we just the school that we work at has a has a rule that if they catch you coming back on campus, they're allowed to search your bag. They're allowed to search your car. They're like, why are you off campus? That's reasonable suspicion. um, And then there's nothing that you can you can say or do to, to stop them from doing so.
1: Right. Uh, I mean, this one is obviously one that gets the students really heated. Even when we get to the idea of, um, you know, suspicion and probable cause and things like that, you know, like where'd you draw the line? Well, Ultimately, it kind of depends on a case-by-case basis. Obviously, police are going to have more interactions where they have to prove what a probable cause is than most people, but it really, a lot of it depends on the court. What does the court say and understand to be probable cause is probably going to change a little bit in a case-by-case basis. What is the court going to accept as reasonable suspicion, right? And, And so, especially when you get to unreasonable searches and seizures, especially at school, it's a lot harder to prove that your rights were
0: violated in a search. The other important part of the fourth amendment that it derived and understood, especially when it comes to your property is the right to privacy and this right that the government can't spy on you. Right. Um, we really see this really played out in um During times of chaotic incidences, so 2001, you see this debated quite often um, with the Patriot Act and whether or not the federal government has the right to spy on the American people. Now, they're doing it for a good reason. They are making sure that society is is protected and that we're not going to have another terrorist attack of any kind. But people feel like the federal government is overstepping their bounds they they're they're wiretapping people's phones, they're monitoring what you're looking up on the internet. Um, at times they move into neighborhoods to spy on people. They you don't really notice them because they blend in so well, but but people really are, you know, questioning whether or not that is constitutional or it violates the 4th amendment.
1: Right. It's really important to understand the Patriot Act in the context of the time in the September 11th attacks. There were people who were trained to fly airplanes in America. You know, there were whole networks of uh, a, a small terrorist network, to be fair, but they were operating in the United States and and carried out those attacks, obviously. So there was a huge push almost right away. And it was very bipartisan in Congress to give the government a little bit more free reign and how they collected data, especially cell phone data on on its own people. Or at least people without its own borders, uh, which obviously includes its own people. And so I, I think that in the context of the time, it might be understandable, but as time's gone on, it has been shown time after time that, like, it probably stepped a little bit too far. It's been rolled back a little bit here and there, but the government still has a lot less scrutiny on it than it might have before the 2001 September 11th attacks uh, due to the Patriot Act and, and the amount of opportunity it gives for them to perhaps jump past the original barrier of what the Fourth Amendment allowed.
0: I know I always enjoy watching people cover the microphone on their phone before they say something. Like, I don't want the government to hear me. I got Jeff watching me on my webcam right now. Hey, Jeff. So another important Supreme Court
1: case just to be aware of um, and it's derived from the Fourth Amendment, as well as you could argue the Third Amendment to a degree, you could argue the Fourteenth Amendment to a degree. But uh, it, it is the case of Roe versus Wade, and in the case of Roe versus Wade, we we do want to talk about it in a way that strips away the morality part of it, right? Um, because in this AP Gov class, we do want to understand and talk about it from a legal perspective and how it was argued in front of the Supreme Court. And so the the core idea behind the Roe versus Wade decision is there was a woman who was seeking out an abortion who was banned by her state for getting that abortion. And so she sued her state under the derived right to privacy which you could say in the Third Amendment, you know, you don't want a bunch of soldiers in your house because you have the right to not be spied on, right? You have the right to not have the government in your daily business if you don't want to. Obviously, parts of the Fourth Amendment, unreasonable search and seizures, uh, protection of your persons, your your property, right? Uh, that, that fits into the idea as well. And then, of course, with the 14th Amendment, when you get to Equal Protection Clause, that's where you're going to get to the idea that you know, the Fourth Amendment applies to me. The 14th Amendment applies to everyone equally across the country. Within the Roe v. Wade decision, the Supreme Court originally ruled that the government did not have a right to make a, a plain outright ban of abortion due to the fact that it interfered with a woman's right to privacy.
0: Yeah, and then the 14th is included in there. And it's important that you know that the 14th is approved in there included in there. And it says that the states cannot make their own decisions. It basically bars them from creating their own legislation when it comes to abortion because of the right to privacy. So in our curriculum, Roe versus Wade used to
1: be one of the landmark Supreme court cases that we had to know. Um, And we actually haven't talked about it in class and maybe we should have, but the big idea is it due to the Dobbs decision of the last year it's, at least for now, it's going to be off the books. It's, it's one that's probably good to know for how we understand the idea of the right to privacy. That along with like the idea of Griswold versus Connecticut, which largely was like birth control, it's a related issue. But due to the divisiveness of the Roe versus Wade and later the Dobbs decision, at least for the time being, it's not a case that we have to know at this point.
0: Moving on, we're going to talk about the Fifth Amendment now. Um, And if you thought there was a lot to unpack on the Fourth Amendment, then just hold on to your your, your hats because there's a lot more to talk about here in the Fifth Amendment, and I will read as follows. No person shall be held to answer for capital or otherwise infamous crime unless on a presentment or indictment of a grand jury, except in a case arising in the land or naval forces or in the militia. When an actual service... In time of war or public danger, nor shall any person be subject for the same offense to be twice put in jeopardy of life or limb, nor shall be compelled in any criminal case to be witnessed against himself, nor be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor shall private property be taken for public use without just compensation." There's a lot there, and we'll unpack each individual one. Um, the most famous of these rights that comes out of this um, is is in there, and it's it, you hear it all the time in law shows, and it's the the right of pleading the fifth. And pleading the fifth um, is that line in there um, that talks about uh, you know witnessed against yourself. Um, pleading the fifth basically means that you do not have to speak and in in a way to keep yourself protected for, for any reason. Yeah. And you sometimes hear the concept of pleading the fifth and and it is a, it's a protection
1: against you telling on yourself, you know, you can't be a witness against your own person unless you, unless you choose to be right. Um, It it is meant to protect yourself against saying something that you, you did something because again, we have to understand that as we were talking about the fourth amendment, the police have gone through this before. You know, most people don't get arrested multiple 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 times in their life maybe they do, but you know, most people's first run in with cops, you're probably going to be nervous and the cops are really good at asking questions, sometimes in a very clever way to get you to spill the beans. You know, divulge information uh to a crime that you may have committed that uh, even unknowingly. You know, and, and and so when we understand the 5th amendment, we do have to understand that that plus Part, part of what Hertzler said with the Sixth Amendment, the right to an attorney is a fundamentally important idea for people accused
0: of crimes. Speaking of cases, as, as you've noticed, we've had an, a case for every amendment. The important case for the Fifth Amendment is um, one that is very well known, um, and it is Miranda versus Arizona. Um, in this case. Um, you had a guy who committed some heinous crimes, not going to go over. It's not important to talk about what he did, but it's important to know that he was arrested for these crimes, um, put on trial and and convicted, admitted to more, convicted. Um, but it was found out that he was not read his rights of the accused. And we all know the very famous line, you have the right to remain silent. You have the right to an attorney, blah, blah, blah. But he was not given those. And so he was let go.
1: Right. and Herzer was just going over something that you've heard in every TV show and movie forever, right? You have a right to remain silent. Anything you say can and will be used against you in the court of law, so on and so forth. Those are called your Miranda rights because it comes directly from this case. Ernesto Miranda was tried for a series of crimes that he admitted to under police questioning. Uh, largely, it was argued because he didn't know what his rights were. And before this time, you know, some police departments would read some level of rights to you or inform you as to what you could or couldn't do, but it wasn't mandatory. But under Miranda versus Arizona, Ernesto Miranda, who admitted openly to doing a lot of very heinous crimes, was openly released because he was not told that he had the right to a lawyer. He was not told that he had the right to remain silent and not self-incriminate. And so at the end of the day, the Miranda rights that you hear in every, you know, police show and so on and so forth, it directly derived from this case.
0: For those of you that are worried, uh, justice was served. Miranda was killed five years later in a bar fight somewhere in the Midwest, um, but, but there was some justice served. And upon being arrested, the person who allegedly killed him was read his Miranda rights. All right, there's also some other important parts of the Fifth Amendment that we need to unpack. The other one is uh, very important as well, and it's the one that says uh, that someone cannot be uh, subject to the same offense twice. Basically meaning if you are found innocent of a crime, you cannot then be retried for that crime. So if a jury of your peers finds you innocent, they can't bring new evidence back against you.
1: Right, so if you were if you were acquitted of crime the very next day, you could say, yeah, I totally did it. Ultimately, it, it is up to the state to bring a compelling evidence against you when they try you for the very first time. And this, this whole concept is called double jeopardy, and you can't be tried for the same t- crime twice. And so with that being said, we do want to make sure we're clear about this. Uh, it, the, the crime has to be the exact same crime. If you are selling drugs to Tony, And the next day you're selling drugs to Dan. Those are two separate crimes. That's not one crime. And so that you could be liable to get tried for two separate cases, right? Um, But the case is different. If you think about maybe the most extreme circumstance, if you're accused of murder, right? You can't murder the same person twice. This is not halo. Protection against double jeopardy means the state cannot keep trying you again and again and again and again until they finally get you convicted. That's not how it works. The next part to this is is really kind of random, if I'm being fully honest. Um, So in the Fifth Amendment, we talked about the really big ideas. But the last big idea that also is part of the Fifth Amendment, but like doesn't really seem associated, is this concept of eminent domain. And in the idea of eminent domain, it's simply saying that in certain cases, the government can seize property from you or seize land from you if it's for the good of the overall community. Uh, A really good example of this is if they're building a road that cuts through your property. They can ultimately take property from you if it's for the good of building the road. Now, part of that does include the fact that you should be fairly compensated. They can't just take stuff from you outright, but they do have to offer you money for things. And oftentimes, people go to court over eminent domain issues. But more often than not, the government has a really easy point to prove of why seizing property is going to be good for the overall community. It's it's sometimes difficult to win those types of cases. The Sixth Amendment is also a pretty big one. And the Sixth Amendment is, in all criminal prosecutions, the accused shall enjoy the right to a speedy and public trial by an impartial jury of the state and district wherein the crime shall have been committed, which district shall have been previously ascertained by law, and to be informed of the nature and cause of the accusation, to be confronted with the witnesses against him, to have compulsory processes for obtaining witnesses in his favor, and to have the assistance of counsel for his defense. So there is a lot there. But again, if we're breaking it down, you have the right to a public trial that's meant to be speedy. You have the right to confront your accusers, and perhaps most importantly, you have a right to an attorney, because, like. Again, most people who are arrested aren't necessarily arrested five, six, seven, eight times. You don't know the process. For better or for worse, there are people who, as an occupation, know how to do court, right? They're lawyers, and they're meant to represent you because they professionally know the law. And they can represent you in court because they're much more knowledgeable than most people are
0: going to be yeah they are like accountants for taxes they 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 go to sc- they punish themselves to go to school for long periods of time to to learn this. but yeah, yeah, um so it is important to know the these rights these are included in your Miranda rights as well um and that leads us to another important court case that kind of deals with 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 this. So part of what makes the Sixth Amendment such a
1: big idea is you, again, have to understand the context of the time where if you're accused of a crime, you could be thrown in jail and the government could keep you in jail for an indefinite period of time and never hear a trial. You know, you never see your day in court. The Sixth Amendment is written specifically to try to fix that by ensuring that your trial is public. You're not just going to be randomly like accused somewhere and disappeared like they do in a lot of countries. Um, you're going to get a jury of your peers. The idea is that the people who are going to ultimately choose to try
0: and convict or acquit you are going to be people of the same community that you live in. And on that point, you know, that jury idea is very important because you had times where you have one person deciding your fate. Um, and, and you want that consensus. You, you want people that live in the same area you do to make those decisions because a judge doesn't know you, but the people might. This is one of the things that a lot of people complain
1: about is, oh man, I got jury duty. I don't want jury duty, but like the court system needs good citizens, you know, and it's not necessarily fun to be called by called for jury duty. Like I, I think everyone gets that. But the court system needs good citizens. They don't need people who are just wanting to blow it off and get it over with for the day or trying to constantly get out of it for maybe illegitimate reasons. Because if you have, looking back on the civil rights movement, for example, you have a jury pool. You have 20 or 30 people perhaps that they're choosing for, you know, 12 spots, right? And so oftentimes back in the day, you would have people who, uh, who are African-American, accused of crimes, and convicted by all-white juries. The idea of a trial by jury of your peers is meant to have people on the jury, at least somewhat, who are going to be representative of you or the community overall. And so there's been a lot of work in several Supreme Court cases that we're not going to specifically talk about that dealt with the trial by jury and trying to make sure that it was representative of the accused and the community they come from. When we're talking about the idea of a right to an attorney, this is another important Supreme Court case that we have to know for this class. And that case is Gideon versus Wainwright. In Gideon versus Wainwright, this is taking place in the 1960s. uh, Gideon has a little bit of a rap sheet to his name, he's kind of a. in in and out of the system type person ever since childhood. And yet again, he's coming before the court. This time, he's been accused of a felony, which was stealing money from vending machines.
0: He's no saint, guys.
1: But he goes before trial in the state of Florida and says, hey, I've been accused of a state felony. I would like to have a lawyer present for my trial. And the judge says, hey, you're just being tried for a state felony. This is not a case where you need to have an attorney present. Gideon dejected, but understands, and the trial proceeds. I think it's over in like an hour. You know, it's, it's real quick. He's convicted right away and sent back to prison. While he's there, though, he's, you know, he's reading up. He's thinking about it. And he decides to write the Supreme Court directly with his case. And he says, "Hey, under Florida law, I was denied the right to a trial uh, and and with a lawyer present, with a counsel present. I feel like that was a violation of my rights." And the Supreme Court issues a writ of certiorari to hear the case, and they actually name a—he's an up-and-coming guy, Abe um, Fortas—as his counsel for his kind of retrial case almost. And he actually, Abe Fortress actually goes on to be a Supreme Court justice for a few years, but there's kind of a fun fact to throw in there. But um, it was argued that Gideon was denied the right to counsel under federal law. And even though it was at the state level, again, we have that selective incorporation idea. They brought in the concept that he is charged with a felony, even though it was in Florida. Florida is part of the United States. The Bill of Rights applies to Florida as well as it applies to the federal government. So under that selective incorporation doctrine, Gideon's rights to a counsel, right to an attorney, were violated by the state of Florida, and Gideon ends up winning this case.
0: Yeah, it's just important to, again, note that that 14th Amendment application there. Um, I'm going to harp on this all the time. 14th Amendment plays a big role in a lot of these court cases that we're taking a look at. Um, this is also a federalism idea, uh, the states trying to over overreach how much power it has by by making their own claims. The uh, federal government denies it because it's their jurisdiction. Right. There's your there's your fun floor, Florida man story for the week.
1: Yeah, Gideon is the ultimate Florida man, guys. If, you, if there's nothing else, probably you should remember the case. But if you remember anything beyond that, Gideon, Florida man.
0: Speaking of disputes, um, how many of you listening uh, like watching Judge Judy? Well, that is going to apply to our next amendment, and that's the Seventh Amendment. We're not going to hit too much on it, but we do need to make note of what the Seventh Amendment is. And basically, the Seventh Amendment does not deal with criminal suits. It does not deal with the Supreme Court. And the Seventh Amendment reads as follows. In suits at common law where the value in controversy shall exceed $20, the right of a trial by jury shall be preserved. No fact tried by jury shall be otherwise reexamined in any court of the United States then according to the rules of the common law. So basically, all the Seventh Amendment says that if you are dealing with property over the amount of $20, you, as someone who is accusing someone of this crime, have the right of that case to be heard by a jury of your peers. If you don't want to have a jury of your peers, then a judge can decide it for you. Basically, all that, that specifies there. Yeah, so obviously
1: we don't have a we don't have Supreme Court cases dealing with the Seventh Amendment because no laws were broken. But you know, obviously Hertzler was talking about the big thing with like daytime court shows. Those are those are one hundred percent civil disputes. If Hertzler were to borrow my computer and he breaks it by mistake and I'd sue him for, you know, replace my computer, it was seven hundred dollars, right? That that's a civil court. Other things you tend to think about divorce, child custody, those fall under civil court because again No law was necessarily broken, but you're just trying to fix disputes between individuals. The Eighth Amendment is another Rights of the Accused Amendment, and the Eighth Amendment is not very long, but it's definitely controversial. The Eighth Amendment says, excessive bail shall not be required, nor excessive fines imposed, nor cruel and unusual punishments inflicted. So, you know, that's not a very long amendment, but there's a lot to it. The big idea here is that the state cannot punish you beyond what is fair.
0: Yeah, and that deals with two two areas here. It deals with is the death penalty legal under cruel and unusual punishment, and what is determined to be an excessive fine. Um, that was that's the other question here. Um, we actually looked at an interesting court case, uh, Timms versus Indiana, where a guy was. Uh, arrested for uh, drug possession and selling drugs and basically the point of the case was they had a fine that he had to pay uh was ten thousand dollars but they decided they were going to keep his car which was worth forty thousand and say that he that was that was his debt being paid and he claimed that that was an excess fine for the crime and the supreme court rules with tims saying that indiana is violating the eighth amendment that, that he is overpaying for his fine Right. And the Eighth Amendment goes
1: beyond that. And Hertzler talked on one of the big points of the Eighth Amendment, and really maybe the controversial point of the Eighth Amendment, is uh, the, the idea of capital punishments. You know, are, we're, we're talking about the death penalty for crimes. And, you know, is, is the death penalty in and of itself a cruel and unusual punishment? Well, I mean, if you look at it as compared to the rest of the world, the, the, the rest of the world that is similar to the United States, we're one of the only countries that have the death penalty anymore.
0: Yeah, and it's important just to know what the death penalty, especially in the United States, it, it is a very state-by-state state issue as well and how people view it. It's a federalism issue. So that's what makes it so debatable because you have states like Texas that since I think it was 1976, Texas is it's like 520-some people. I looked at a map the other day. Um. Uh. That have they they have put to death since 1976? North Carolina, 46. Right. So so vastly different numbers. And there are some states that have had one or or none, no people put to death. Um. When it comes to the death penalty, so it is important to note that even in the United States, it's so debated on whether or not by a state basis.
1: Yeah, and I I would argue the death penalty is kind of on its way out for for some reasons because. I think I heard an NPR report this morning that last year, there were a total of 18 executions nationwide in Oklahoma and Texas were over half of them just combined, but you know, uh, most States don't use it anymore. Um, And and maybe that's pressure from the public. Maybe it's pressure from kind of, you know, international human rights organizations, or maybe it's just the cost of, of lethal injection, the cost of some of these measures of execution And the trials that come along with them are just too much for states to really
0: prefer that to, let's say, life in prison. One interesting thing with the death penalty, and I talked about it in class, is is how the death penalty is kind of selected in court cases. Um, Most of the time, the jury will decide whether or not the death penalty can be used as a punishment. And then the judge will then apply the death penalty as needed. So... I do like the fact that the judge cannot just say the death penalty is going to be used. I like the aspect of the jury of the person's peers get to decide whether or not the death penalty um, is, is a viable option. I don't know if you you want to talk about that, but I do of that fact, I like how one person can't just decide someone's put to death or not. Yeah. We're not taking a position
1: on it one way or the other right now, but you know, if you had to say that you know, the death penalty is going to happen it is probably best that it's decided by a jury rather than just a single judge. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So when it comes to the death penalty, there are a couple of big cases that deal with the death penalty. A couple of them actually coming out of the state of Georgia and one previous case, I believe is Furman versus Georgia ruled along the lines that, you know, in the past, the death penalty had been disproportionately used for people of color. Um, You know, you have some of the civil rights cases kind of coming out of it and, you know, a lot of the time the death penalty has been used for people who later on down the line, there's DNA evidence or something like that that shows that they were actually innocent. Um, So, you know, that's one of those tough things. Like if you if you had life and life in jail, for example, life in prison, uh, it, it's much easier to say, oh, we messed up. You're free to go versus, oh, well, you were executed by the state. We can't really fix that now. Right. Um. But on the but on the issue of a second court case coming out of Georgia, it was Greg versus Georgia in nineteen seventy six, um, along with the several other court cases, they have ruled that capital punishment is constitutional in certain cases, uh, and and it's probably easier to talk about people who are excluded from capital punishment as a form of uh, punishment rather than, you know, people who are eligible. But people who cannot be executed by the state include mentally ill, mentally handicapped, people who are under 18 at the time that they committed the crime, uh, or or just an instance where maybe it's an attempted murder, but the person did not actually die of the crime. Those are all instances where the Supreme Court has ruled that you cannot uh, try somebody with capital punishment under those circumstances.
0: And I think one of the things that, again, brings this debate to light is all these cops and criminal shows that we watch and how the death penalty is portrayed in society um, kind of bring that debate going. Uh, I know one of my first instances of, of understanding the death penalty was in the Tom Hanks movie, the green mile and just how, you know, just, you know, that that would be disturbing and unusual punishment in, in my mind. Um, but but it, the way that the death penalty is carried out has changed people's opinions on it. Uh, but it's still just about as heated as 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 ever. Moving on, we're we're done with the, the rights of the accused now. We're going to move on to the Ninth and Tenth Amendment, two amendments in the Bill of Rights that that are important. But Ninth isn't really talked about all that much. The Ninth Amendment reads, the enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. All right, basically saying that the federal government cannot um, overstep its bounds when it comes to the rights of the people. Um, Again, it's not used all that much. You don't hear about it as much when it comes to the Bill of Rights. So we're just going to move on.
1: I mean, basically, if we were to just take this a step further, because I have to, I have to talk about it more. It's who I am. (laughs) I can't. Um, But, you know, basically, what, what the Ninth Amendment is saying that, look, we may have not have thought of every single right that you should be guaranteed, every single protection you should be guaranteed from the government. But ultimately, like... If we didn't mention it, you're probably good to go. So things like the right to have a job, the right to dye your hair, the right to have clean drinking water, the right to eat junk food, these things that you wouldn't necessarily think is a huge deal because, you know, they're probably taken for granted or they're probably taken as a given in most circumstances. But a lot of your own self-determination ability, that's Amendment Number 9. And, and we don't have court cases that really deal with Amendment Number 9 because it hasn't been... Incorporated, for example, like it's just one that's not really talked about. And last but not least, the final amendment in the Bill of Rights, amendment number 10. The powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution, nor prohibited by it to the states, are reserved to the states respectively or to the people. So this is where you get the reserved powers of the states from. Basically, Again we have to go back to the context of history because that darn history never goes away. <laughs> Federalists and anti-federalists arguing over the constitution. Anti-federalists want states rights. Everything needs to be at the state level. There should not really be any federal government in the in the view of many anti-federalists. Federalists on the other hand argue that the federal government is going to be able to best deal with a lot of crises that a nation faces versus, you know, 13 states trying to make up their opinions, right, make up their own minds. But this amendment is specifically included to give some reassurance to the anti-federalists that, hey, states have a lot of rights. States have a lot of power in self-determination, what they do and things like that. We just have to specifically say that if it's something the federal government can't do, and something we specifically said that states
0: can't do, states have the right to do it. Yeah, and this was designed to basically give the states a little bit of a leeway when it comes to, like Crowder said, self-determination. And it and it really deals with issues that are community-based issues. Uh, some of the big ones, you know, public schools is the biggest issue that deals with um, – the 10th amendment, the other big one is voting. And we've, we've hit both of these topics when we talked about the federalism episode. So if you want to hear the arguments that we have about that, you can go back to episode two um, and, and listen to that. But, but again, the amendment 10 is about community. Can, can the community deal with these issues? The differences in North Carolina and South Carolina are going to play a big role in how education determined how people vote. So, so it's important that, that, that is known that it's these community issues.
1: Yeah. And even things like marriage, divorce, driver's license, taxes, these are all things that States get to decide more often than not. Uh, and so basically like we could keep going. There's a whole laundry list of things that States have directives to do over the federal government, but for all intents and purposes, a lot of States have a lot of rights for how they do a lot of things.
0: And just so we're clear, Amendment Number 10 deals with that that one word that we bring up all the time when it comes to government, and that is federalism. What is designed powers for the federal government, and what is designed powers for the state governments, and that division of power and how it's set up. So
1: there we are, guys. These are our civil liberties, the first 10 amendments to the Constitution that guarantee our rights to a huge number of things, and they're written specifically in a time to— Assuage the fears of people who are afraid of a strong federal government, but they're also written in a way to guarantee that you and I have certain rights and privileges that the government can't infringe upon.
0: Thank you for listening. Remember, if you want to hear more about us, um, we, we have social media sites on Instagram and TikTok. Uh, we, we post fun videos on TikTok that are educational but also entertaining. Uh, um, we, you can listen to our podcast on Spotify, Apple podcast, iHeartRadio, all, all, all the major podcast listening sites. So if you want to hear more, if you want to listen to more of our episodes, if this is your first one, those are where you can find them. Thank you so much for tuning in. Have a great day. Bye guys.